welcome to another episode of our podcast, Much Language, Such Talk. Today you are hearing from me, Eva Maria, and another Bilingualism Matters volunteer, Dr. Maria Dokovova. Welcome, Maria. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm Maria. I have recently finished my PhD in phonetics at Queen Margaret University. And now I'm doing a master's in speech and language therapy there. I'm also a volunteer with Bilingualism Matters. And we have recently launched a campaign called Accent Positivity. Um, I had the idea of accent positivity thanks to the body positivity movement this summer. I was inspired by their central message, which is that of respect. I think for way too long, society has tolerated belittling people based on surface characteristics and for no, for no good reason. That may be people's bodies, but also their accents when they speak. One of our volunteers, Kat Brown, who is also an amazing artist, has created a mascot for this campaign. It's a chameleon that you can find on our website and social media channels. Chameleons are highly adaptable, just like accents often are. We are also planning on publishing blog posts and interviews and videos within the campaign. So make sure to follow Bilingualism Matters on social media. That is at Biling Matters on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And you can also post yourself using the hashtag Accent Positivity. To talk about accents, we have invited Dr. Ella Jeffries from the University of Essex. <laughs> Ella is a lecturer in linguistics with her expertise in the field of sociolinguistics. Coincidentally, Ella has recently started a new project called Accent the Positive that we were unaware of when we named our campaign. So that's just a nice coincidence. The project investigates children's developing awareness of regional accents, and we are thrilled to welcome her to the podcast. So welcome, Ella. Thank you. And thank you very much for having me today. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, we're, we're excited to talk with you about accents and everything that comes along with that. Okay. So um, just as a, as a general introduction, um, how did you develop your interest in languages and in sociolinguistics in particular? Yeah, well, I think there are kind of a couple of different sides to the story. Um, so just a little bit of background about me. I grew up in the north in Yorkshire and in, um, in the UK. And, but with Southern parents, so parents who were from the South, uh, from sort of near London-ish. So I was always kind of aware that my parents spoke quite differently to people in my community. And as a result, I ended up kind of playing around with my accent quite a lot when I was younger. So I think that maybe not sort of, um, I wasn't necessarily aware of my interest at that point, but looking back, I can see that I was very much sort of intrigued by the fact that I would say sort of dance and path and bath, whereas my parents would say dance, path and grass because they were their southern pronunciations. So I kind of, I had, had a bit of awareness of this. When it came to actually studying linguistics, though, that was more, a little bit more by accident, really. I, and I was interested in languages, but I also kind of had a bit of a sciencey brain. So I in, enjoyed sort of studies, investigating things and experiments. So I think linguistics for me, studying linguistics for me was, the, was that perfect combination of, of the arts and the sciences, kind of that, that hybrid. So looking at something like language in a sort of scientific kind of way. Yeah. And so I did my, my undergraduate in linguistics in which I sort of, during my um, dissertation, became focused on sociolinguistics. So I came back to that, to the accent variation that I'd kind of been intrigued by as a, as a kid um, and looked at some features of, of, of the Yorkshire accent. Um, and then that kind of took me forward during my MA and during my PhD, where I focused even more on regional accents um, and in particular on 
on children's developing awareness of them, which I'll, I'll talk about a bit later. Mm -hmm. So uh, you're kind of hinting at what your PhD was about. Can you tell us in a bit more detail what that was? Oh, yes, indeed. I'll talk about it now. <laughs> so, yeah, so my, my PhD looks at children's developing awareness of regional accents. So I carried out my PhD again up in the north of the UK, this time in York, which is fairly close to where I grew up in Leeds, but in Yorkshire. Um, and so it very much focused on the local children there and their particular awareness of regional accent distinctions. But I was really intrigued by what happened at quite a young age because there was quite a lot of studies with infants sort of looking at those very early stages and sort of hearing sounds and, and what kids do with that. And then there's there's been quite a few studies on slightly later, so primary school or and above age children. But there wasn't really anything in between or not much that I was aware of. So I was really interested in what happens at that kind of age of three and four when we know kids are becoming more socialized, they might have started, to, started nursery, things like that, but they still got that um, primarily the input from their parents or caregivers. So I was intrigued as to what's happening there and, and when children start to become aware of regional accents. And I think, again, this kind of this um, intrigue started back in my own childhood and it kind of took me back to my own understanding of what it meant to say bath versus bath and that kind of thing. So my mum gives an example that I used to say um, when I was little, I used to say bath because I associated that with being at home and that's how they would pronounce it with the long R sound. Whereas I'd say dance with a short A sound because that's how people in my local community and the, the kids that I went to nursery with would say the word. So I had this kind of a bit of a mixture of an accent. And then eventually it kind of leveled out to me saying bath um, for throughout. But and we'll talk a bit more about um, accent development later on. But um, but yeah, the, the, that, so I'm interested in, in sort of how kids are dealing with that variation. Are they able to kind of differentiate people based on, on the way that they speak? Um, and I indeed found that actually even three and four year olds, so quite young, young kids before even school sort of age were able to, to categorize, to group speakers according to quite distinctive north south features of their accent in the, so this is all within the UK, but saying things like bath versus bath. Or saying something like goat versus goat, which is another kind of north-south feature. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I found found that these quite young kids were able to do something with accent, but also that their own experience and exposure to variation really played a role. Um, and again, based on my own experience um, of having the, these parents from outside of my local region, um, I, you know, I could kind of um, empathise with that. And the kids who had parents from from outside of the local region and we're mainly talking monolingual children here because this was a, a, a small community of kids within York who were mainly monolingual but even even kids who had parents from outside of the local region from somewhere else that wasn't York or Yorkshire um, seem to be better at differentiating people based on their accent so there seems to be something going on in terms of exposure to variation and how that plays a role in awareness so, so that's kind of where, where my conclusions kind of led me to in the end. That's, that's very yeah. interesting. I think yeah, for me also, it's really interesting from the point of view of speech and language therapy, because we're studying so much about mm -hmm. uh, children's development of uh, language in general. So it's mm -hmm. really interesting to learn how they're actually also aware of the um, regional differences, yeah. which actually mm -hmm. leads me to another question. If you could maybe clarify for us from the start. What is the difference between a dialect and an accent? 
Yeah, a good question. <laughs> it's something we explore with first year undergrads right from the beginning of um, their sociolinguistic education. So we generally think of, a, of an accent in spoken language as being based on how we sound, how we pronounce our vowels and our consonants. So I've, I've given a few examples of saying bath up in the north and bath down in the south. It's often, so it often evolves based on the region that we grow up in, but can also reflect other aspects of our background, social class or ethnicity, that kind of thing. Whereas a dialect is a bit more than, a bit more than this, basically. So it involves using different grammar, different words as well. So it might be, might be sort of as a kind of more independent language variety, you might say. But the, the key thing is there's no sort of concrete rule or definition, really, that can draw a line between accent, dialect, and even language. So the kind of what, what forms a dialect versus what's a language is often a very contested thing and is often more of a kind of political question or an ideological question um, than anything primarily linguistic. You know, it might revolve around a country's history. It might revolve around the relevance of the particular language varieties to certain populations. There's all sorts of things, kind of really interesting things, but nonetheless, sort of not very easily categorizable things um, um, sort of bound up in that. But primarily accent is to do with kind of pronunciation when we're talking about spoken language. Yeah, that's that's very interesting and a very highly debated, mm -hmm. especially in linguistics, um, because, you know, we're students in Edinburgh and uh, there is a discussion about Scots being a language mm -hmm. or not, and mm -hmm. it is a minority language in Scotland, but there's still a lot of people that say it's just a dialect of English. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a very political debate, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. and uh, we're probably going to do uh, an entire episode on, oh, on, on yeah. that later yeah. on. Yeah. <laughs> so um, that basically brings me to my next question, because I don't know if you ever watched American talk shows or the late night shows, because as soon as the hosts have guests from abroad, they comment on their accents mm -hmm. and... Um, Some talk show hosts have referred to them or to Americans not having an accent at all. Is that even a thing? Like, is, is there a person style. in the world? Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah, like the American accent is just, I guess, is like a standard. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but is that even a thing? Like, does a person exist that does not have an accent? No, that's a myth. <laughs> it's yeah. another thing we um, dispel with those um, poor first-year undergraduates when we like, tell them everything they've ever known is, is wrong. No, only joking. But um, yeah, um, everybody has an accent. Um, and when, yeah, when people declare that they have no accent or that someone has no accent, this is usually because um, the person they're talking to or talking about or if you're talking about yourself, either it's because they have some sort of standard accent. So yeah, in the American case, I mean... People don't really talk about a standard American, but a general American accent, whatever that might be. Or in British English, it might be something like received pronunciation or standard Southern British English. We often refer to it now. So usually it's because the accent is more in line with some sort of standard variety. Or it's because, and or it's because the, the, the person, the speaker sounds like oneself. So you kind of, you hear someone and they, they don't sound that marked. They don't sound that different to you because they sound like you or the people you know. So you don't really think of them as having an accent because it's not that. It's kind of like turned into a sort of othered thing to have an accent. Um, so, but yeah, the, the, these are all accents. They're just not necessarily reflective of things that we might think an accent reflects. So they're reflective perhaps of social class or education or upbringing um, and maybe not region or where they've grown up or maybe a combination. But, but yeah, so everyone has an accent. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. So you basically already hinted at what I was going to ask next, mm -hmm. because how does how does someone develop an accent? Now, you already mentioned upbringing mm -hmm. and the region and all of that. But but what what other factors play a role in that? Yeah, so through a combination of, of means. Um, and yeah, I did hint at that when I was talking about how my own accent developed. So I'd yeah. say bath and dance, and then I kind of leveled out to saying dance. So essentially, first of all, we kind of, because primarily we, we only interact or primarily interact with caregivers, we end up kind of starting to speak like them. But then usually when we join nursery or school and we're kind of socialized into our community, we end up speaking much more like our peers than our parents. That's what people often say. It's kind of peers rather than parents. So that's why people might sound quite different. So I sound quite different to my parents because they're seven, <laughs> for example. So I ended up sounding more like my northern friends than my um, southern parents. But there were lots of other things kind of bound up in that too. So attitudinal factors and ideological factors. So how kind of invested we are in our local community or how much we want to stay attached to our hometown. Um, so our accent can kind of change and develop as well. Um, and that might depend on, again, how sort of how much we want to reflect where we're from or how much we don't. And, and we'll talk about that as well. But um, but yeah, essentially, we, we kind of get that, that mixture of input from 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 our caregivers and, and our community, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're talking about how highly individual that could be, uh, the process of developing mm -hmm. your own accent and how it depends on so many actually internal factors. Um, so I think mm -hmm. this is probably a good place to maybe talk about what is the difference between an accent and an idiolect? So an idiolect... Um, might be something, the kind of language that an individual uses, which is quite unique to them in comparison to an accent where, which they might share with other people. So those features of, so saying Bath, I keep coming back to that example, but it's an easy one to draw upon. Um, so the way that you pronounce that vowel in a word like Bath is, you know, perhaps a feature of your accent, but then lots of other things um, that you say in the way that you say them and the combination of features that make up how you speak. Um, is going to be idiosyncratic to, to yourself. So it's going to be um, individual. Um, so you know, despite us all speaking languages and language varieties common to other people too, we are essentially all different people. We all have our unique backgrounds, experiences and influences. We have our own internal thought processes. Um, so this is bound to influence the way that we use language. And none of us speak exactly the same as each other. And what, so what makes up this unique way that we speak individually is our idiolect. So it's quite hard to kind of pinpoint particular features or, you know, what exactly is makes up an idiolect because it's kind of everything. <laughs> and um, yeah, so, so it is interesting to look at what, what makes us unique as well, as well as what makes us um, as similar to each other. That actually brings me on to the next thing I was wondering about. Um, you mentioned that mm -hmm. you ended up developing quite a different idiolect is I guess or a different accent compared to your family um, and that is probably due to their displacement and you growing up with uh, your own local peers um, and that led you to have a different accent from your family. Um, I've now in my course uh, in speech therapy I've become aware that sometimes a similar thing might be observed but for local families. So for example, if uh, someone has a child with autism, they may sound different from their family because they might pick up uh, an accent from TV that is different from their community. 
Are there any other examples of members of the family having different accents and what could be reasons for that? Mm. Yeah, that's a really interesting example that you just brought up there. Not that I, ha- I don't have much of a background in um, speech language therapy, but I can see, I can see where, that, um, where that might come in. Um, yeah, so absolutely for family moves around, for example, which I've already kind of said with my own family, but, um, you know, if, so I've got another personal example of a friend of mine who, um, I know from school, so know her from Leeds, but she moved up to her with her family from the Southwest and um, when from Southwest of, of England, maybe when she was about 12 or 13 with her younger brothers who were maybe eight or so, or maybe even younger, I'm not entirely sure, but. Anyway, they, they, she kind of kept a lot of her Southern features. So she has a very different accent to her two brothers because they sort of assimilated to their Northern surroundings much, um, much more easily or, you know, they just adapted more because perhaps they were a bit younger and that kind of thing. Uh, so they ended up sounding quite Northern, quite Yorkshire, whereas she kept quite a lot of her Southern vowels um, and, you know, essentially sounded quite, quite different to, to the rest of, um, to the rest of us Northerners. Um, so yeah, it might be to do with the age um, in which you move around um, with your family. It might be to do with the, the kinds of groups of friends that you um, that you get. So again, you might have two siblings in the same family who have you know not moved or whatever, but one of them gets a certain type of group of friends who speak in a certain way, and another gets another kind of group of friends, or you know they're involved in different kinds of social activities which involve a different kind of way of speaking and. So, Basically, depending on the, the, the kind of people you hang out with, that might end up determining to some extent your accent. So yeah, there's all sorts of reasons like that. And there might be reasons that people want to actively sound in a certain way. So they'll kind of purposefully try and change the way they speak. And that might play a role in, in how you might sound different to, to members of your family as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, actually a topic that I would probably be asking you a little bit later. So uh, considering how many things go into the mix of what your accent ends up sounding like, can we use the same procedure to kind of backtrack and learn something about the person based on what accent they have? Is that a legitimate thing? What can we learn about mm. people from their accents? Yeah, we often can. So um, we can often tell where someone's from, or at least where they've grown up because um, um, they might not have changed how they speak, speak much since they kind of grew up into adolescence. So you can often tell uh, where someone um, grew up based on their accent. So if I hear someone say Bath, <laughs> I know they probably grew up in the North, for example. Also, even more specifically, you might hear some, um, so in, in, again, in the UK context, but if you have someone, don't know how well this will come across on the recording, but if you say Buch, with that kind of pronunciation, you might think, okay, they're from Liverpool because that's quite a specific pronunciation to people from Liverpool. Or if you hear someone say, now, for now, you might think, okay, this person's from Northern Ireland. Sorry for my bad pronunciation for anyone listening who's from those places. So yeah, you might get an idea of where they grew up. You might also know different places they have lived. Some people have these kind of amazing hybrid sort of accents where they've got a little bit of this, a little bit of that, depending on where they've lived. And you might be able to pinpoint some of those places based on how, how someone sounds. Um, you might be able to tell, you might, or you might think you'd be able to tell um, someone's educational background. So, you know, we've got, in this country in particular, we've got a very kind of private school educated way of talking with a kind of received pronunciation accent. So you might be able to um, tell that or think, think that you're able to, to tell that. Um, but also things like the social class background. 
ethnicity, where someone's parents are from. Perhaps these are things you can tell. Perhaps they're things that we make assumptions about. And there, there is a bit of a sort of blurry line between those things. Um, so, you know, it's, it's sort of being a bit careful with the kinds of assumptions you make. But inevitably, we hear someone's voice, we start to make kind of social assumptions about them. So, yeah. Yeah. That's an automatic process almost, the assumption making. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. And not just for accents, but but for uh, yeah. a lot of other things as well. Yeah. I think that's mm-hmm. just the how our, how our brains are, yeah. how they work, mm-hmm. right? So since you mentioned assumptions, since we often have assumptions based on people's accents uh, or even how they use language in general, um, what are some situations in which we might be wrong about a person's accent? Do you mean wrong about the judgments we make or wrong about... Or anything to do with their background or both <laughs> both things. Yeah, where where our assumptions could be, yeah, yeah. just wrong. Just wrong. <laughs> I mean, judgments we make are wrong all the time, right? So yeah, uh, yeah. we might think, uh, you know, we might hear a voice and go, "Oh, that person sounds a bit terrible," or you know, they sound, yeah. a bit, you know, sound a bit stupid, or "Oh, they sound very intelligent," and that could be completely wrong, um, and it's likely to be um, not necessarily right at all. So yeah, the, the, the judgments that we make um, in terms of social judgments and stereotypes that we develop um, around people and based on how they sound uh, are definitely um, ones that, that are often seen as wrong. Um, so people are vilified all the time for um, pronouncing things in a sort of non-standard way, especially high profile people. You know, you see kind of all you have to do is search online and you'll find in the press kind of people being written about all the time you know having a a thick northern accent or something like that thick in the sense of sounding stupid rather than thick in the sense of having a strong accent but um I guess they kind of mean both but yeah I I think also we can make wrong assumptions based on the other stuff as well so we might not be able to so we might hear someone who sounds like they're from a certain place but actually it's because I don't know they've they've very much accommodated to someone else who was from that place and ended up speaking a bit like them so that's maybe a bit rarer but you do get the case where someone just really does end up talking like someone else and so it doesn't necessarily reflect their background, but it's kind of reflecting the people they hang around with more or something like that. So there are instances in which we get the kind of other, the other background stuff wrong as well. Yeah. Also, if you think about it, uh, especially from a very early age, if you watch Disney movies or mm-hmm. if you watch television, you're exposed to different accents, um, foreign accents as well. And, you know, the Russian accent is always like the criminals and the Italian accent is the mafia. And then the French are always very romantic and the Spanish are very passionate. And so from a very early age, we're all exposed to all of these, you know, accent and language varieties Mm -hmm. that prime us. Mm -hmm. And of course, kind of later influence us in our assumptions about people from those places or with those accents. Yeah. Yeah, it can be quite dangerous. Yeah. yeah. So I had, a, I had a personal, well, not a personal example, but an anecdotal example from someone who'd watched, um, who'd kids had watched The Lion King, where the hyenas have, the, the old one, actually, because there's a new Lion King now, isn't there? <laughs> Which is probably better yeah. accent <laughs> represented, but the old one where the hyenas, or at least one of them, has an African American accent. And, um, you know, they're the evil characters. Um, and a kid's, was walking past a group of African-Americans in the street and heard just one of them speak and was actively kind of scared by this person because they associated the accent with being evil because of the hyenas and the Lion King. So it can literally be that sort of, that specific an association. 
that, that kids might make and then you think, well, where, where does that go then? How does that manifest into, you know, kind of these dangerous negative stereotypes? Exactly. That's, that's almost heartbreaking. Yeah, that, is, yeah. that is very dangerous. Um, so have you come across people or do you know of any cases where people hated their own accents and uh, mm, yeah. they might want to desperately, you know, they might want to change how they sound um, or you may be the opposite that people are very proud of their accent. Like, do you have examples for that? Yeah, I think there are examples of both. Um, sadly, a lot of people do hate their accent um, or, you know, want to sound different or, 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 you know, don't like the way they sound. And that is quite worrying because it's often based on the fact that they think people are judging them for the way they sound. Um, and or that they will somehow do better by sounding differently or speaking in a certain kind of way. So it's quite difficult to change your accent completely as so many different things contribute to the way that you sound. And um, so there are certain aspects which might be easier to sort of mimic or change, but other aspects which are much harder. So there are, there are ways in which people try to do so, but it's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a common thing for people to kind of try and attend um, classes that, um, to change their accent, to change the way they sound. And, you know, that's a bit sad, really. <laughs> I mean, no, no, I mean, we all, I guess we all have these kind of negative biases around the way we sound anyway. No one likes listening to their own voice particularly. Well, maybe some people do, but <laughs> not so many. Um, but the kind of, if you get into the root of why someone might particularly hate their accent as opposed to anything else particular about their voice, you know, it's probably bound up in um, distinctions of what sounds intelligent, what doesn't, you know, what their sort of um, expectations of how someone should sound are. Um, and that's, you know, something that is, is quite negative. On the other hand, people might be extremely proud of where they're from. They might therefore love their accent as a reflection of that. So usually when you uncover someone's insecurities about around, you know, how they might view their accent, underneath that, there might also be this kind of level of element of sort of pride in there as well. So we often have this kind of what we call covert prestige, this kind of hidden um, sort of, yeah, I'm proud to be from Yorkshire. Um, so yeah, my York, you know, and so you might, you might, you might have, have that aspect as well. So yeah, you, you can get both, I think. Is it even possible now that you, you've kind of touched upon that? Is it even possible to change your accent? I know uh, you've mentioned that mm -hmm. some people like actively, consciously try to influence how they sound. But I'm guessing that it also has to do with a form of phonological awareness because you would have to hear the difference to be able to even try yeah. to produce it. And then also, I guess there's a lot of individual variation of how people are even able to produce different accents because... Yeah, yeah. I, I guess that's uh, there's a lot of factors that play a role in that. Yeah, definitely. So there are lots of studies in kind of second dialect acquisition, where people have looked at how much of an accent or what at what sort of age an accent is able to be changed. So as I mentioned, some examples earlier of friends and, and things moving around, and um, at what age you know are you able to or you're more likely to change your accent based on your new community. And generally speaking, the younger you move, the more likely you are to acquire the new accent more fully, which is probably um, unsurprising. But um, but this can it can happen at any age. Um, it's just that the sort of very nuanced aspects of an accent, to use a non-technical term, <laughs> the, the 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 aspects of our pronunciation, perhaps that we don't even know that we use. Like you said, if we not we can't necessarily even hear these things. 
um, might be much more difficult to change and might, for, and might therefore never be able to be changed. I think there was an interesting study that found that only people whose parents themselves were also born in the, the place that they were were likely to get the full, if you can use, again, the non-technical term, accent of, of that community because there's just so much to it. There's so much to what an accent might, what might be and what it might involve. Um, but yeah, lots of, um, lots of different factors. Yeah. Um, it, this whole thing makes me think, uh, of lots of, uh, friends that I have, uh, who are mm -hmm. from, uh, other places and speak English as a second language. And they, uh, mm -hmm. quite often have, uh, negative views about their own accents. And I've been, mm -hmm. uh, cause I've been studying phonetics for a long time. I've re often received the question, what can I do to change my accent and all mm -hmm. of that. So. Uh, I'm often faced with the situation where I have to give some advice to people who think that their accent sounds ugly or not native enough. Mm -hmm. What kind of advice would you give to people who have this problem? Yeah, it's a difficult one. Um, so I think there's that aspect of it, it would be kind of be boring if everyone sounded the same. So, you know, we want to embrace variety. It's quite difficult to tell someone that and, and think, make them take that on board when they're learning a new language. But if I'm using that, I'm going to use the Groove Armada song. If everybody looked the same, we'd get tired of looking at each other. So if everybody sounded the same, we'd get tired of listening to each other, presumably. Um, you know, language varies for a reason and, um, you know, variety is, is a great thing. But the non-native accent thing is, you know, is understandable. If we want to pass as such as a native speaker in another language, you know, perhaps we want to sound more native-like. But then I think we have to just think about or get people to think about why that is. Why do we think it's any better to be a native speaker or to sound like a native speaker? And what even is, does that even mean? So, you know, there's one aspect of wanting to, to be native enough to understand like idioms and sort of expressions that you might not get um, if, if you weren't. But in terms of pronunciation and how, you know, you might not sound exactly like a native speaker. Um, what makes, you know, the way that a native speaker sounds any better than the way anyone else speaks. And perhaps if we didn't sort of hold up one particular way of speaking as a sort of ideal, um, you know, this might, might help us to overcome some of these insecurities. And, and yeah, when it comes to learning English, for example, anyway, you know, what, what kind of English are we talking about to sound like a native speaker? Because that could be many things. <laughs> Very true. And, and true of other languages too, of course. Yeah. But just because English is the most learned second language mm. in the world, I think everybody has expectations when it comes to that. But it, it does kind of tie into ideologies very yeah. quickly. So I, I agree that you there's no shame in not sounding native at all. Mm -hmm. But we can we can come back to that later. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you recently co-wrote a piece for the conversation. I think it was published a couple of weeks ago mm -hmm. um, and it was about students in the UK and their experience with uh, their accent. So what was the mm -hmm. motivation behind that? What kind of what was the inspiration for that piece? Yeah, so there was actually a piece in The Guardian, written in The Guardian newspaper, um, which we were kind of coming off the back of, if you like, sort of writing in response to, which was talking about yeah, students experiencing accent discrimination at university in particular. So in particular, The Guardian article focused on um, northern accented individuals kind of not fitting in with their, either southern surroundings, but often not even that, because even universities in the north have a, you know, there's a certain snobbery around not sounding standard or standard southern British English, because the stat in this country, the standard accent and southern accent 
a kind of interlinked because the standard is based on on a, on a certain variety that there's that kind of intrinsic feeling that that, that, that this variety holds prestige that northern ones don't. And um, so we were coming off the back of that, but we we were also trying to say, and this is where my actually it's my colleagues' research more um, relevantly comes in. So Amanda Cole, who works with, who's a colleague at the University of Essex, she's looked at um, the South um, and how people who've moved from what's known as the Cockney diaspora, so people who've moved from East London up to Essex, where we are now, have um, and there's a certain stereotype and lots of negative judgments around people with this Cockney-esque, but now kind of seen as an Essex accent, um, and that people negatively stereotype this accent a lot. Um, even people from from the southeast, even people from from the region. So we just kind of wanted to make the point that that, that accentism, so discrimination based on accent, is is relevant in the south as well, and is often based on this kind of class rooted in, in social class sort of snobbery. Yeah, uh, there is a lot of um, it seems like turmoil in uh, England about uh, the different dynamics between accents. And obviously, Eva and I are based in Scotland, so we are also aware of similar tensions between different uh, speakers of different accents here in in Mm -hmm. Scotland as well. Um, Mm -hmm. So, But at the same time, even though we're aware of all of these um, tensions and the great variety of accents that is not only regional, but as you mentioned, of different social class, Mm-hmm. outsiders, I guess, maybe even insiders as well, but I'm speaking as an outsider. Uh, often people talk about, oh, this person has an English accent and therefore they sound cute. Mm-hmm. Or this person has a Scottish accent and all of these uh, big generalizations. Is that meaningful? What does that even mean? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because as we've kind of touched on before, in the case of English, I mean, in the case of other languages too, but specifically English, um, in this instance, it's disputable whether it's even relevant to talk about English as being a single kind of entity altogether. There are so many different Englishes spoken throughout the world in so many different ways. Um, you know, perhaps we can't even talk about being English or having, sorry, having an English accent. Even if we narrowed it down though, so if we said British English accent, for example, again, there are so many variations on that. People might assume you mean RP, so received pronunciation or a kind of standard Southern British English accent, because this is perhaps the accent that learners um, listen to when they're learning a language, they hear more of that kind of accent, of an accent. Um, so I'm learning Italian at the moment, and um, presumably the kind of speakers we're listening to and the kinds of audio we're getting, it, it comes from a particular kind of accent. Whereas, you know, if, if I encountered various different dialects in Italy, and I'd probably struggle to understand all of them. So yeah, we kind of get trained a little bit into thinking of, of a particular language as having a particular kind of accent. But it might kind of depend on what context you're talking about having an accent in. So um, undoubtedly, when I'm learning Italian, I speak with an English accent. And I'd be more similar to how I speak Italian to another English person than I would to a native Italian or someone from another country, perhaps. So there might be a sort of relevance there in saying, okay, her accent is kind of an English-accented Italian because there are certain pronunciations that I haven't grown up, you know, knowing or learning. So I'm having to put my own English sort of take on them because they're sounds that I haven't um, been introduced to before and it's the same the other way around. So, yeah, I think 
it depend, might depend on the sort of context you're talking about. Um, and but but to think about English as beyond as beyond just being a British English or an American English or whatever is is probably quite important. So I guess we've just been speaking about a little bit of foreign accents. So, for example, an English accent in uh, Italian. Um, I think quite often there might be a, a positive um, attitude towards foreign accents when you don't expect the person from that specific place to uh, be learning your native language. So you're celebrating it and you think, oh, your foreign accent, like foreign <laughs> English accent in our native Bulgarian sounds so lovely because you're actually putting the effort and not many people are learning mm -hmm. Bulgarian. And that might be one reason people have more positive mm -hmm. associations with certain accents uh, on a foreign accent um, platform. Why would that be, for example, in a native accent situation? Why would some native accents be more prestigious or people would regard more positively than others? It's a good question. I guess it's something we don't entirely know the answer to. And there's probably, as usual, lots of different factors. But in terms of the standard sort of non-standard things, so the fact that standard varieties are often held with higher regard and more prestige and seen as more intelligent and have these kind of positive associations, that's kind of held up in a whole history of prescriptivist tradition of kind of telling people how they should use language and how you know, especially written English, but also spoken English in, in, in English terms, um, should be used. So these kind of prescribed ways that, that people should use language. However, this has never really worked because language is always varied and changed. Um, so the positive associations of other accents. So, for example, in, in the UK, people often think of, I don't know, a Newcastle accent as sounding quite friendly or a Yorkshire accent as sounding quite trustworthy. So despite having some negative connotations with these northern varieties, often there's these kind of other positive sides to them as well that people associate. So you get that kind of that side. And that might be partly as a kind of flip side to the standard accent sounding intelligent and perhaps a little bit unattainable to actually sounding, you know, somewhat kind of approachable and, you know, a bit more, you know, one of those sort of thing. In the UK, there's... Yeah, that's the, that's the word that I was thinking of just now, approachable. <laughs> approachable, yeah, exactly. In the UK, there's all sorts of other things as well, like caught up in the history of the country. So the north of England has this very strong industrial association, um, coal mining in the northeast, for example. So there's that kind of working class, strong working class kind of pride, a bit like I was talking about earlier, this covert prestige, this pride associated with where you're from and the kind of background to that. And um, that those working class roots perhaps being reflected in that prestige as well. So kind of in-group identity reflecting a positivity that, yeah, that, that you know, for, for some varieties in particular. But there's all sorts of interesting nuances that you might think, why is this one preferred over that one? And, you know, why? And, you know, I guess there's, there's multiple factors to look into to investigate a bit more in depth how they develop. And I think, and maybe I'll talk about it, maybe I'm anticipating another question now, but um, in terms of what I'm interested in finding out about how those sort of associations develop um, in childhood as well. Yeah, I think, um, as you're saying, in part, it probably is passed down through mm -hmm. the generations and how you're socialized into a specific accent, whether you end up liking it or not, or who you are prejudiced mm -hmm. against. But probably also as people mature, they hopefully may mm -hmm. meet people uh, of uh, who speak with these accents who can uh, maybe challenge some of these perceptions, which would probably also be an interesting research direction. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, I think that's kind of also part of what we are trying to do here with the Accent Positivity campaign. Um, one of the main aims of this campaign is to start a conversation and maybe challenge people's attitudes towards certain accents, maybe towards even their own accent if they're battling with um, accepting it. Do you think it's possible to do that at uh, beyond childhood to change people's accents and bias, <laughs> uh, not accents, people's exactly. attitudes and biases towards accents? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think it's at least to be aware of bi- of the biases we might have and to make sure that we know that there's no objective truth to them. Um, so many people are just simply not aware that what they are doing when they are judging someone based on the way that they speak is accentism, that it's a form of discrimination. So you might sort of think, well, why is that? And maybe partly because unlike other sort of protected characteristics like race or sexuality or things like that, the way that you speak is something that you can kind of change and people therefore think, well, if you can change it, then, you know, maybe you should. And rather than think of it the other way around and think, well, if it's something, you know, that we're judging people on, um, perhaps we should stop doing that. (laughs) It's also definitely possible to change the way that accent stereotypes are actively used. And we, we talked about this just earlier, but so, for example, in TV and film characterization, um, how Disney or any other, not to just single out Disney, but um, any other um, sort of children's TV, but also adults as well, play upon these stereotypes to perpetuate a certain characteristic associated with a certain accent. So that certainly is not going to help the matter. Um, so, so yeah, I think being aware of that might might lead to kind of changes along those lines, which will help us to create more kind of accent positivity and acceptance. Absolutely. Yeah. And we also, if you think about it, like mm-hmm. we, we want to take it step by step, right? Like, um, as we already mentioned, like it's, it's completely normal for us to have assumptions mm-hmm. about not only accents, mm-hmm. but just in general about people when we meet someone. And I'm very much Mm -hmm. aware that I do that as well. Like I do have, like I do judge people on the way they use language and the accent they have, but I'm now aware of the fact that that does happen and that I am doing it. And then every time I notice these thoughts, I just actively Mm -hmm. consciously remind Mm -hmm. myself, no, (laughs) that is not okay. And that is basically the conversation we're trying to start, right? To, to kind of start people to reflect upon their, yeah associations and the assumptions and mm. the, the judgments, right? So uh, that was basically the idea behind behind the campaign. Mm. So it's a very important point. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I also do that. I think, as we said earlier, it's just a spontaneous thing uh, of, uh, I guess, making assumptions about people. And the important thing is to realize, oh, this is an assumption. It might not actually be based on mm-hmm. reality. It's what I've done. Uh, and I think that's uh, probably the main message. Right now, because I'm living in Essex, um, which is far from home for me, <laughs> for hundreds of miles away in um, Yorkshire. When If I hear a Yorkshire person now in Essex, you know, I'm sort of like, oh, I get sort of a little nostalgic little, and I feel like sort of drawn towards <laughs> them. And I mean, they might be like the horriblest person in the world, but because they've got that accent, and I've got that personal connection. I can't help but feel a sort of like warmth towards them. So, you know, some of that, you know, you can't sort of necessarily train out of yourself, but you're just going to be aware of of where, you know, where that might come from. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. They sound like home. Exactly. Yeah. I was going to yeah. say this reminds me of traveling uh, by train from London to Edinburgh. And I think after Newcastle, the staff who works on the train change and uh, the English staff get off the train mm-hmm. and then the Scottish staff come in. 
So as soon as we pass Newcastle, I think, and I start hearing the Scottish accent, I feel yeah. like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm going home now. <laughs> so it's yeah, the same yeah. thing for me. Yeah, of course, not knowing anything about the people there. But uh, yeah, I guess we have all of these positive and negative associations that may not always be useful. Yeah. So Maria and I are both non-native speakers of English. And I don't know if Maria has any um, experiences with people commenting on her accent in English. But uh, so far, I've only experienced curiosity <laughs> of people asking like, oh, I can't place your accent. Where are you from? It's a different story for you know, speaking German yeah. in public in the UK, that's a different story. But just just my English accent, I have not had any negative experiences, at least not yeah. overtly. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody has said anything. But do you know about a bias that people might have towards different accents or non-native accents in, in the UK specifically? Yeah, I think there is this kind of idea around the sort of more, not, not, not the more non-native, like, but the more different, I suppose, to put it, Yeah, to put it like that, the more different um, a language is or the language variety is from one's own um, and therefore the more different sounds it includes and that kind of thing, the more people kind of other it. So they, they might, you know, might maybe view it, I don't know whether it's negatively, but negatively or differently, you know, as not belonging or in some sort of sense. There are some languages, you know, that people, English native speakers might hear and they've got certain kinds of sounds, like more fricative kind of sounds. So they think... So, you know, people often talk about languages sounding harsh. I don't know if you've ever heard that, but that's what English people say because um, perhaps because they're not used to these sounds and they sound a bit, you know, a bit different. Um, or languages where vowels are pronounced. So I'm Italian, back to Italian, where like pretty much every word ends in a sort of vowel. So often that transports onto an English, onto when they're speaking English as well. So people kind of say that sounds lyrical and maybe more like song-like or something. Melodic, yeah. Melodic, yeah. So some of them might be quite harmless, um, but it becomes an issue when you kind of say, all right, that, well, that harsh sound sounds a bit ugly and, you know, you start to kind of judge people based on 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 that kind of those negative assumptions. But yeah, so those kinds of things. Yeah. Different topic, um, a different question. So um, we already kind of touched upon that a little bit, but our volunteer Kat Brown, who designed the beautiful chameleon that we have as our mascot for the accent positivity campaign, she uh, actually referred to herself <laughs> as a accent chameleon. That's how she came up with the idea um, because she noticed in herself, in her language, that she kind of adapts to whoever she's talking to. So basically to her conversational partner. Um, is that common thing to observe for, like, is that a general thing that people mm -hmm. do or is it Is it also very individual? It is a common thing, yes. Yeah. So we talk about accommodation, we call it in social linguistics, speaking like the people that yeah. you're um, speaking to or speaking with. Um, but it, it is individual in the sense that some yeah. people do it more than others. And um, so Kat's kind of recognized this in herself that she accommodates a lot. Um, so some people do do it more than others. And that might be down to, again, these kind of ideological factors of wanting to, I mean, I'm not judging Kat at all, but whether you want to kind of fit in to some extent, or, you know, you want to show your um, solidarity perhaps with the person you're speaking to. But we often talk because, again, in the kind of university context, when students come, they come from different countries, they come from different different parts, parts of this country and they um, are all kind of put together in these um, halls of residence and a lot of accommodation happens at university because people are mixing they're all starting to sound more like each other um, because that's a natural thing so yeah, yeah we often get interesting examples of that at uni in particular 
And do you think that's an important thing to do? Mm-hmm. So, for example, if someone decides to relocate, uh, whether for university or for work or whatever, should they actively try to sound like the people that they're surrounded by in the new place? I mean, I wouldn't say should, I wouldn't prescribe, you know, put a prescriptive sort of tint on it, but, it, you know, it's up to the individual People might feel that it's important because it might feel important to fit in in some respect. It might be the opposite. It might be that the person feels like it's important to actually stand out and sound a bit different. Yeah. And the the other side to it is that, so again, I'm a bit conscious of sounding quite Yorkshire or quite Northern. Now I'm down South. And I don't think many people even realize or even kind of pick up on it to the extent that I think they do, if that makes sense. So I'm kind of like, oh God, I sound so different to everyone in whatever context it is. And, you know, I think a lot, you know, a lot the time people maybe don't even know or don't pay attention to it that much so it maybe it's kind of yeah sort of understanding how other people's percept where other people's perceptions are as well yeah and i guess it's not just perceptions i guess it's also a lot of expectations that come with a certain accent or when hearing a certain accent so i know of some people some people say that they try to avoid sounding too Mm. native whatever that even means in their foreign languages because of the expectations that come with it Uh, meaning that if you sound too native Mm. um, or too convincing um, people would be weirded out or perplexed Mm -hmm. if you then make grammatical mistakes or you are missing words and Mm -hmm. you can't think of vocabulary and they would then be confused (laughs) just like but you sound so convincing how can you not think of those words and so there are people that try to avoid sounding too native so uh, people would kind of just to kind of manage people's expectations I guess and for me personally mastering the phonology of any language that I'm learning was always a natural thing because for me phonology was always part of learning the language, Mm. just like vocabulary is. So I never really worked on not sounding German, but I always try Mm. to get the pronunciation right, if that makes sense. But does mastering a non- or basically does mastering the accent of the language that you're learning, does that have anything to do with proficiency at all? Or is that something completely separate? What do you think? It's an interesting dilemma, isn't it? To not want to sound too native. Like It is. I think it's perfectly possible to speak very well in another language, but still um, not have but still have a non-native accent. So, you know, you can be absolutely fluent and you you wouldn't be able to tell that you weren't from the country or whatever, but still have aspects of your accent. So, I I mean, I don't know if there's an answer to that. Um, I suppose it might depend on your first language or your uh, native language and how many similarities it shares with the language you're learning. If it's closely related, it might might be easier to sound native. I know I'm struggling with quite a few sounds in Italian that I'm learning at the moment that some of my other classmates who are native Spanish speakers aren't struggling with so much because they've got those sounds where they're used to those those things. So yeah, there's there's elements in which it's definitely going to play a role. Yeah, so I don't know. Like the rolled R. Oh, I can't do that. I know, I wish. I need to train myself. But that is that is an anatomical thing, no? Like I think Well apparently, is it partly genetic or yeah, something. I'd that's my excuse. Yeah. 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 But um, yeah, and so perhaps some people are just better at mastering their sound. But I think there are certainly people who are very good, like min- mimickers or who can like accurately, you know, in phonetics classes, people who can really produce these sounds that they've never 
encountered before or spoken before in their native languages, but they're just very good at them. So it might be a bit of an individual aspect to it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think that I'm going back to phonetics classes now because of my master's and I will have an exam oh, doing wow. all of these fun sounds that uh, I've never used in <laughs> any language or um, yeah before. Fun. So that's coming up for me in a month. <laughs> that's fun. Um, so good luck. Thank you. Yeah. So I completely appreciate the struggle of learning uh, a trill. Yeah. I think that we are not going to be doing that. We're not going to be tested on that. Thing you sounded good. Although, though. yeah, I'm fine with it. I'm fine with it because oh, okay. I have it in my native language, but other people uh, are struggling. Yeah. yeah, it's just generally a really difficult sound. Yeah. Do you have any suggestions on how to be more positive towards different accents uh, and towards different dialects as well? And what can we all do to become more accent positive? I think you mentioned this yourself, actually, um, experience variation and be aware of, um, you know, and as much as you can and be aware of the kinds of judgments we make based on the way that someone speaks. So, I mean, as my research found with the young kids, that exposure to variation does seem to play quite a big role. So, you know, it might be in different forms, but listen to local radio, watch films set in other places, visit other parts of the country or the world when we can, when COVID is gone, finally. <laughs> Encourage future generations to learn about accent diversity and embrace it. So I think there's definitely a role for education here um, and having kind of, you know, let's have some popular TV programs or children's programs where the main characters don't just have quite a standard accent, you know, that's, let's make sure that that, rep that variation is represented and then just calling people out on their accent prejudices so as we hopefully would do with other kinds of discrimination and prejudices to to you know kind of politely <laughs> make people aware of what of what they're doing yes. to do that yeah i think it's key to be um compassionate yeah. when doing that also considering that we yeah, all do exactly. it to a certain extent but i think also what you mentioned reminds me of uh, the film anomalisa i don't know if anyone has uh seen it it's a kind of twisted like a horror film i think as far yeah. as I remember. I don't know if that's for me then. Um, but everyone in the film sounds the same. They have oh. the exact same voice apart from one character. And uh, that's part of, well, the main thing that makes the film sound horrible. Mm. So I think uh, that's, if you want to experience perfect uh, horror. horror and perfect similarity mm. of accents in speech and voices, see that film to see how that could yeah. play out in the other extreme. Okay, interesting. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, we went through all the questions that we have, and I'm pretty sure because Maria and I are both so interested <laughs> yeah. in this, we could probably talk for hours on end. Thank you so much for taking the time and for joining us, Ella. We, uh, we really appreciate it, and we are thrilled to have had you on the yeah, podcast. Thank you. And to also uh, to have launched the Accent Positivity Campaign. Um, so thanks, Maria, for the idea, because that's it's, it's a brilliant initiative. Thanks for your time. Thanks for your expertise, you know, the patience with all the questions that we had. And of course, for all our listeners, we hope that you enjoyed this episode and that you learned more about accents and that you might be able to challenge your own prejudices and assumptions. And you might be able to pay more attention to your implicit attitudes as well. But it's uh, like I said earlier, it's baby steps for all of us. If you want, you can learn more about Ella's projects. You can find the links in the description. You can also follow her on Twitter. And uh, don't forget to give us a follow uh, on Twitter as well. Thanks for tuning in. And we hope to welcome you back in two weeks. Stay well, stay healthy and... Ciao! Do scoro! Cheers! <laughs>